Hello and welcome to another episode of Forgotten Child Music. Hi, I'm Aaron. This is, well I can't really decide, is this episode 29.1 or is this episode 31? Regardless, I'm going to put a little more context around the introduction or the inception of the violin cello. Most of this information is taken directly from the book The Violoncello and Its History by Joseph Vasilevsky, translated by an Englishwoman, Isabella Stigand. You know, to my mind, what could be more interesting than reading about the cello? Another interesting fact is this book is apparently the first one in English of this magnitude about the cello. Well, in this episode, really what I'm doing is throwing a little bit more context around the beginnings of the cello by taking a little more lengthy excerpts from the very beginning of the introduction and then the very end of the introduction. Basically everything in between, that's some 20 pages worth, is exclusively about the viola da gamba and all of the instruments in the wide family of the viols and the like. Learning the cello's history and what preceded it and how it came into being really gives us some intriguing insight. We know why the cello was named, what it is named. Uh, its full name is the violoncello and why it has its shape and the dimensions and also the number of strings that are used. And then of course what was the purpose of the instrument? Why did they even have to invent this one? I'll just give a little overview of what's to come. You know, the violoncello has to do with uh, the bass instrument. It was created to take the place of this particular bass instrument. Um, and because it was smaller, the Italians ended this name with the diminutive ello or cello. So what did it come from? It came actually from an instrument called the violone. Violone. And this was a, a quite a large instrument. If you want to see a picture, head over to my blog at WordPress, Traveling Cello Journey. I'll put a link in the description. You can see pictures in my latest blog post from Michael Pretorius's Syntagma Musicum. Uh, from the 1500s, a brilliant, brilliant compendium of, of music and illustrations. If the cello came from this, this bass instrument called the violone, or was created to replace it, I kind of wonder, you know, where did the violin come from then? And why do we call this the violin family? You know, cello is in that family, viola, violin. I think even the double bass is considered part of this family. According to what I've read, it's actually the viola family, not the violin family. So the viola seems to have come first. It was slightly larger. We can, I think we can kind of ascertain that because the violin in Italian is violino. So there's that diminutive ending, ino, which always indicates something that is smaller, so it came from something smaller. Ello, cello, uh, ino, 
violino. So these instruments were cut down in size, and so they gave them a diminutive. I think we can safely say that the violas are the violinist daddies. <laughs> and the violone is the cellist daddies. Now, what's the difference? The cello was so awesome and amazing that the violin, violone ceased to exist. Nobody ever played it after the cello came about. But apparently the violin still needed lots and lots of assistance, so the violas are still around. Huh, take that, violin players. Or should I say, violino players. Again, really cool illustration in my latest blog. Go check those illustrations out. Here it is. I'm taking excerpts from this introduction and giving you the parts that are relevant to the cello and its making, its, uh, its uh, development. I hope you enjoy. Please leave a comment. Leave, let, leave a message. Leave a like. Uh, tell your friends. So here it is. The introduction, excerpts from The Violoncello and Its History by Joseph Vasilevsky. Our concert rooms are always crowded to overflowing. Foreign artists think it worthwhile to come year by year to England. Schools of music are multiplying and eagerly attended by amateurs as well as professionals. And I think it may now be taken for granted that a musical education may be as thoroughly acquired here as abroad. Every kind of musical instrument is taken up, if not always with a really serious intention. But no instrument has more rapidly or more certainly come into favor amongst all lovers of music than the violoncello. It is therefore somewhat surprising that up to the present time no book has been published in English either as regarding its history or its literature. We love to know and often take pains to inquire into the history of any favorite picture, to learn something of the artist's life, the circumstances under which he painted it, and often the origin of its conception. I therefore hope that the story of the violoncello will be acceptable to all who love it and give their lives to the development of its many beauties and capabilities. The account of the violoncello's forerunner, the viola da gamba, cannot but be especially interesting. This instrument, having been formerly cultivated in England to so great an extent, the frequent allusions which Praetorius in his Sigtagma Musicum is a proof of how high their reputation was abroad. If for a short period we have no violoncellist of extraordinary merit to chronicle, more modern times have produced artists who will bear comparison with any of the greatest players on the continent. Introduction Viola da Gamba The history of the violoncello and violoncello playing is connected in its earliest stages up to a certain point with that of the viola da gamba and its forerunner, the basso di viola, of the 16th century. This last-named instrument formed the bass in the string quartets of that time, to which also belonged, according to the Italian designation, the discant viola, or violetta, as well as the viola d'alta, 
and the tenore. In Germany, these instruments were called discant, alto tenor, and bass viols. The terms viola and violin were at that time consequently synonymous. From the foregoing remarks, it will be perceived that it is a question not of one kind, but of a whole family of stringed instruments. Violas, or violins, were of two kinds. Some of them had no bridge. Others, on the contrary, were provided with one. For the object before us, the last only claim our consideration. Of which, as well as of the bridgeless violins, there were four different examples. The alto and the tenor were of the same size, but of different methods of tuning. The so-called violas, fiddles, were provided with six strings. In Jodenkönig's and Hans Gerle's works are found the accompanying illustrations of stringed instruments provided with a bridge. Their identity is unmistakable, though they differ from each other in many peculiarities of form. Both instruments represent the so-called big fiddle, or basso, the viola. The tuning was that of the lute, which as an older stringed instrument served in this respect as its model. Only in regard to the pitch did any difference exist. Jürgen König makes it thus. Here is an illustration of tunings on a musical staff. First there is a treble clef with an A down a fourth to an E, switching to a bass clef with a B down to a G, down to a D, and down to a low A. Then Hans Gerla, on the contrary, writes it thus, on a musical staff, with only a bass clef, a high D, A, E, C, G, and a low D. Here the pitch of the second is a fifth lower than the first. Jürgen König's pitch represents the tenor and that of Gerla, the bass. Agricola says in his Musica Instrumentalis, regarding the height of pitch for the lute, Zeuch die Quintzeit so hoch du magst, dass sie nicht reißt, wenn du sie schlagst. Draw up the fifth string as high as you may, that it may not be broken when on it you play. And in Hans Neusiedler's Lute Book, 1535, it is said, He who wishes to learn how to tune the lute, let him draw up the quint string, not too high and not too low, a medium height, as much as the strings will bear. Similar instructions are to be found in Gerle's Musica Teutsch. The capability of tension of the quint string was Consequently, the guide for the pitch in tuning the lute. Beyond this, there was as yet no normal pitch, and in stringed instruments, it was in every case so maintained. In playing with wind instruments, the stringed instruments had, therefore, to adapt the pitch to them. The great violins were, in the first half of the 16th century at least, according to all appearance, played in two ways. From the drawing in Judenkönig's treatise, a mode of handling is seen which requires no further explanation. That the handling of the great violin, represented by Judenkönig, without any explanation is treated as 
of Not Exceptional appears also from the accompanying vignette of other publication of that period. The bass viol performing with the two lutists represents the same position and manner of playing as the woodcut in Ludenkritig's treatise, with the sole difference that he is holding the instrument in the left hand, whereas the peg box of the instrument, bent sharply backwards, of Judenkönig's player rests on his shoulder. It is very evident that in both cases scarcely more could be executed than the simplest bass accompaniment. More, however, was eventually to be produced according to the treatment of the great violin prescribed by Gerla. He says regarding it, When you have, according to my instructions, Beschreiben, noted, tuned and drawn up the violin and wish to begin playing, proceed thus. Take the neck of the instrument in the left hand and the bow in the right. Sit down and press the viola between the legs, that you may not strike it with the bow. And take care when you play that you draw the bow directly and evenly over the strings, neither too far from nor too near the bridge, on which the strings lie. And that you do not draw the bow over two strings at once, but only over that which is placed under the figurine in the tablature, and this must be especially attended to. It appears, according to Gerla's instructions, that the instrument of which he speaks was a so-called knee violin, in Italian, viola da gamba. It seems, however, that in the 16th century this description was not in common use. Hans Gerle, a native of Nuremberg, born about 1500, had already received important consideration during the first twenty years of the 16th century, not only as a skillful player, but also as a maker of lutes and viols. Yet the making of these instruments, and especially of viols, had already been carried out at a much earlier period than others. The oldest fiddle or viola maker of whom we have any mention is a certain Carlino, who, in according to Fetis' account, lived and worked in Brescia. It is most probable that he was a German, or at least of German extraction, for the name Carl, in every kind of variation, both as a common and individual or family name, had been constantly in use among the German races. In the German dictionary of the Brothers Grimm are indicated the various forms of the name Kerl, K-E-R-L. There is Kerl, formerly Karl, Kerls, Kerls, Kerlis, Kerli, Kerlin, Kerel, Kerl, Kerdel, and Kiel. They are of German origin and are derived from Middle or Low German, whereas the Anglo-Saxon equivalents are Karl, C-A-R-L, or Kerl. Originally the word Kerl, Kerl, K-E-R-L, according to Grimm, was synonymous with Mann, man, and also with Eamann, husband. But it was also used as a family or tribal name, as is proved from the names Jacob de Kerl, 16th century, Johann Kaspar von Kerl, also written Kerl, K-E-R-L, uh, Kerl and Scherl, born 1628, and Vitus Kerl in the 18th century. Another form of Kerl, Kerlin, 
was, according to Grimm, used in the 16th and 17th centuries. Who can doubt, then, that the Brescian instrument maker Carlino was of German origin? He was, evidently, originally called Kerl or Kerlin, to which name was added by the Italians either the diminutive syllable Inno or the vowel O. It cannot be of Italian origin, or the Italian has no K. Feti informs us that Carlino must be considered as the founder of the school of Brescian viola makers, which, as the oldest in Italy from the middle of the 16th century, attained such a great reputation through Gaspar da Salo and his reputed pupil, Giovanni Paolo Magini. If what appears so extremely probable has any real foundation to a German, or at least to a man of German extraction, must be justly conceded the merit of having, in a measure, been the originator of the art of Italian stringed instrument making, which later on developed to the highest point. Further, we learn from Feti that in the year 1804, a Parisian violin maker named Colliker was in possession of a violin, which had been previously described by the French writer on music, De Laborde, containing the inscription, Johann Carlino, on 1449, and which originally had been a violo da braccia. Doubtless, this remarkable instrument exists at the present time. Feti, who saw it himself, describes its quality of tone as agreeably soft and faintly subdued. Among the composers who wrote for the viola, we must mention Giovanni Battista Bonametti, born at Bergamo at the end of the 16th century. In 1615, he caused to be published in Vienna a collection of trios for two violas and a bass. After Carlino, there appeared in North Italy, as noted, lute and viola makers the monk Pietro Dardelli in Mantua, about 1500. Gaspard Duif Oprugar in Bologna, 1510. Venturi Linaroli Linelli in Venice, 1520. Peregrino Zanetto in Brescia in 1530. And Morglato Morella in Venice, 1550. Amongst these, G. Duofo Prugar is evidently of German birth, and remarkable as having, as far as we can see, made the first violins. This artist was in 1515 summoned to France by King Francis I. He at first lived in Paris and then at Lyon. He made some excellent bass viols, gambas, of which two fine specimens are extant in France. A similar bas viol was represented by Raphael in his painting of St. Cecilia. This splendid picture in the Pinacotec at Bologna existed in 1515. After Duifo Andreas Amati, 1520 to about 1580. The founder of the Cremona School distinguished himself in the making of violas, as well as violins. 
His instruments obtained such a great reputation that Charles IX of France, an enthusiastic amateur of music, had 24 violins, six tenors, and eight basses made by him. Amongst the latter, there were several bass viols, like the viola da gamba, the instruments made for Charles IX by Andrea Amati were every one of them destroyed during the French Revolution of 1792. Contemporaneously with Andrea Amati, the manufacture of stringed instruments was vigorously carried on by Gaspar da Salle in Brescia. were used not only for the execution of monotone, that is to say, compositions of one part only, but also for several parts, and especially for double stops in chords. But that the viola da gamba, which for nearly 300 years for the basso di viola or Gerle's great violin, was in fact a gamba, although as yet of a somewhat primitive form, had played an important part both as orchestral and solo instrument, was replaced by the violin cello in the course of the 18th century. Subsequently, when the violin as a leading instrument in the melody usurped the place of the cornet, zinken, and the discant viola, French, par sus de viole, it became necessary to provide an equivalent for the bass part of string quartets, as the tone of the gamba in ensemble playing proved too weak and thin in proportion to the violin. It is remarkable in the history of music that his, Abel's, instrument was buried with him in the year 1787 in total oblivion. The indispensable gamba, without which for a hundred years neither church nor chamber music could be arranged, which in all public and private concerts had the exclusive right to be heard before all other instruments from the beginning to the end, and which therefore, like caskets, must not only be exquisitely finished in every size, large and small, but was also ordered, bought, and paid for, adorned with the most costly artistic carvings, ivory, tortoiseshell, gold, and silver. Confident assertion that the French priest Tardieu of Tarascon had invented the violoncello in the year 1708 is simply to be relegated to the region of fable, for the instrument had already existed long before in Italy. The violoncello had already been mentioned by Praetorius in his Syntagma Musicum, 1614-1620, which is a mistake, for the work referred to contains neither the name nor the illustration of the instrument, but the violoncello must already have been in use about this time in Italy, for according to it is mentioned in a publication of the year 1641, and then in a work of Freskis which appeared in 1660 as Violoncino. In Arresti's sonatas in two and three parts of the year 1665, it is called Violoncello. It was of great importance for the Italian instrument makers to produce a bass instrument of the violin type, which had already been in use from the middle of the 16th century, and this certainly happened towards 
the end of that period. This is proved by the Brescian Gaspard da Salo, 1550-1612. Whether Andreas Amati, the founder of the famous Cremona School, born in 1520, died 1580, constructed similar instruments appears doubtful. Apparently, the gamba as well as the violin served as guides for the proportions in the construction of the violoncello. From the violin were borrowed the outlines of the sound box, the arched back, which the more ancient gambas whose backs were flat did not have. Also the F-holes and the fingerboard without frets. From the gamba were taken the large proportions of the violoncello. It was at first constructed like the gamba, in smaller and larger dimensions, until Stradivarius established a standard size. Gambas were often converted into violoncellos. It appears that the last named instrument was at first called violoncino, and a little while after that, violoncello. The Italian affixes ino and ello have a diminutive meaning, and therefore both names have an identical signification. As violino is the diminutive of viola, violoncino and violoncello are the diminutives of violone. To return to the violoncello, it offered the player two very important advantages over the gamba. First, the finger technique was wholly unlimited because the fingerboard had no frets, which in regard to runs and cadences, as well as changes of positions, opposed a substantial hindrance to the gamba player. Then the player on the violoncello could obtain more tone than on the gamba by drawing the bow more forcibly over a single string. The upper edge of the bridge of the gamba, over which the strings passed, was so flatly cut for harmonized or part playing that it was necessary to avoid a strong tone, lest the neighboring strings should thereby be sympathetically affected. But the bridge of the cello, on the contrary, was of a more convex form, whereby playing in parts was indeed precluded. As is known on the cello as on the violin, only double stops and chords are possible, and the last only broken up. In this manner, the violoncello was used formally at the performances of operas and oratorios as solo accompaniment of recitatives, for which, of course, it is requisite that the player should have a thorough knowledge of music theoretically, as he had to execute at sight figured basses. Corrette gives already in his violoncello tutor. 1741, instructions for accompanying recitative. These directions are, however, by no means exhaustive. Such are first found in the cello tutor compiled for the Paris Conservatoire by de Bayot, Lavasseur, Cattel, and Bourdieu, which appeared in print in 1804. Therein it said, In order to accompany well a recitative, a complete knowledge of harmony and of the violoncello is necessary. One must be intimate with figured basses and know how to execute them readily. He who can do this has reached the summit of art, for it is, presupposes a great deal of necessary information, and still more the power of judging how to turn it to account. 
If the bass player is not certain of the resolutions of discords, if he is unable positively to indicate to the singer when he is to make a complete or a broken cadence, if in his concords he does not know how to avoid forbidden fifths and octaves, he is in danger of confusing the singer, and in any case he will produce a most disagreeable effect. As in good compositions, a recitative always follows a well-defined progression and adapts itself to the character of the part, to the situation portrayed, and to the voice of the singer in the accompaniment. 1. The strength of the tone must be regulated according to the effect to be produced, for the accompaniment must sustain and embellish the singing, and not spoil and drown out. 2. The chord must not be repeated, except when the harmony changes. 3. The accompaniment must be quite simple, without flourishes or runs. Good accompanying always has in view the best rendering of the subject, and when the player allows himself to fill up certain gaps with a short interlude, this must only consist of the notes of the chord. 4. The chord must be played without arpeggio, ordinarily in the following manner. Here follows an illustration, the bass clef, the notation in figured bass, a low G and a low C. So we have a G7 chord that is broken with G and then a double stop of F and B played separately and then a low C, and thereafter a G, and then a double stop of E and C. Bodio in his violoncello tutor, which appeared later than the above, makes the following remark concerning the accompaniment of recitative. It sometimes happens that the actors linger on the scene without reciting, speaking, be it that they have forgotten the text of what they have to recite, or that for some other reason they are silent. At times their appearance on the boards is delayed. In such cases, the accompanist, i.e. the cellist, can perform short preludes and embellishments at his pleasure. But he must be modest about it and employ his ornaments at the right moment and always with taste. To the art of violoncello making, the same applies as to the violin. The productions of the Italian makers surpass those of all other nations, amongst them those manufactured by Nicolas Amati, Stradivari, and Gius. Guanari del Gesù are most to be preferred and justly so. Stradivari and Amati made their cellos of two different sizes. The larger one was formerly called Il Basso, while the smaller one distinguished as the violoncello proper. The latter is the more preferable as being more manageable. In these days it is used as a valuable model. As to the violoncello bow, which had the following form in the first half of the 18th century, its progress went hand in hand with that of the violin bow. The improvements which were successively made on the latter were effected on the former. The greatest perfection reached by the bow was the work of the Frenchman François Tourt. To this day, he has never been excelled in this department. See Appendix A. 
illustration of early bow type. The fabrication, however, of good violin and cello bows has laterally become very general, and especially in Mark Neu Kirchen, the manufacturer of bows as well as instruments, has received a great impulse. End of introduction to the history of the violoncello by Vasilevsky. Thank you for listening to this episode. It was a lengthy introduction or contextual history surrounding the inception and development of the cello. I hope you have a nice day and remember to play more forgotten cello music. Thank you.